Imagine making it to the final bow after singing a title role at La Scala, only to have a variety of vegetables pelted at you from the audience. How does a diva react to that? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. If you are wondering which legendary opera diva received vegetables at her feet instead of bouquets, well, keep listening. I'm Naomi Baratera, and this is just one of many stories we have in store for you today. On this episode, we welcome musicologist and lecturer Matthew Timmermans to the microphone in a special mini-series. Matthew has extensively researched the phenomenon of diva worship, and we are thrilled to have him share with us the legends and lore behind some of opera's most beloved divas. What you just heard was Maria Yuritsa, the prima donna of the 1920s and 30s, singing the aria Visidarte from Puccini's opera Tosca. Although Yuritsa is remembered as one of history's best Toscas, before singing this aria in a dress rehearsal, Yuritsa slipped and fell flat on her face. It was from this position, her nose in the ground and tears soaking her face, that Yuritsa sang Tosca's plea for art and love. Visidarte. Following her aria, Puccini, who was watching the rehearsal, ran onto the stage and demanded that Yuritsa sing the aria this way every performance. Only a genuine 24 carat prima donna of the old school, as the New York Times described her following her death in 1982, could make a colossal mistake and turn it into a dramatic stroke of genius that singers are still imitating today. In addition to her powerful voice, her film star looks, and her acting ability. It was also stories about her prima donna behavior that incited the diva's audiences into hysterics. But what exactly makes a diva different from any other singer? And how does one become a diva? In Yuritsa's case, is it her hefty lyrico spinto voice, film star presence, or the legendary stories that surround her that make her a diva? These are some of the questions that we will explore in this podcast by retelling operatic lore, some mythical and some factual, about famous divas, including Maria Callas, Beverly Sills, 
and Birgit Nielsen, among others. We will see some of what makes these particular singers worthy of being called a diva. In the strictest sense of the word, in Italian and Latin, diva means goddess. Like a mythological female deity, operatic divas have worshippers who praise their unique abilities. And similar to a pantheon, there are not one, but several divas from which worshippers must choose their favorite among her rivals. A diva's worshippers can be quantified in many ways, from the amount of bravage she receives to how many bouquets she collects after each performance. For Angelica Catalani, one of the earliest documented divas, her exorbitant fees were a testament to her fans' adoration. Although she wasn't the world's first famous diva, Catalani was certainly the first singer to have an international reputation garnering her the title La Prima Cantatrice del Mondo, or the first singer of the world. She acquired this nickname because she traveled the world in search of the highest fees for her performances. After an impresario or general director of a theater noted that if they paid Catalani's fees, there would be nothing left for the other singers. Catalani's husband and manager famously retorted, why should there be? You want an opera company. My wife and four or five puppets, that's all you need. Returning to the idea of worshipers, at the end of her life, Catalani was visited by Jenny Lint, who would become one of the most famous coloratura sopranos of the 19th century. Upon her visit, Lint said, I have come to render homage to the most notable of women and the most celebrated soprano of our time. As implied by Lint's visit, a diva has worshippers because there's something to be praised. First and foremost, this includes an instantly recognizable vocal timbre or quality. When listening to the radio, diva worshippers can usually recognize their favorite singers from only a note, and the rare few can tell from the first breath. Many also recognize a diva from her unique faults. For example, Catalani could never execute certain passages without a very perceptible oscillation of the lower jaw, which made these passages sound broken, like a succession of staccato notes on a violin. Despite sounding inelegant, this fault made her full, powerful, and clear voice even more recognizable to her loving public. Having a distinctive voice is important, but there are many singers that are distinctive. What also makes a diva stand out from other singers is her musical art, or what some might call her genius. Her ability to intelligently bring her operatic roles to life through the music and her charismatic stage presence. Singers like Maria Callas, for example, were acclaimed for their musical intelligence. However, Will Crutchfield, a New York Times critic, notes that charisma works in mysterious ways and sometimes undefinable ways. This was certainly the case for Catalani. Although she had a stunning voice, critics bemoaned her over-embellishment of the music because it often contradicted the mood of the piece. Despite claims that she lacked musical taste, audiences still flocked to hear her voice because of its power and possibly to indulge her decadent tendencies. One critic remarked that, it were to be wished that she was less lavish in the display of her wonderful powers and sought to please more than to surprise, but her taste is vicious, her excessive love of ornament spoiling every simple air, and her greatest delight, indeed her chief merit, being in songs of a bold and spirited character, where much is left to her discretion, or indiscretion, 
in which she could indulge in ad libitum passages with a luxuriance and redundancy no other singer ever possessed, or if possessing, ever practiced, and which she carries to a fantastical excess. Finally, and what some might consider most important, divas are known to possess what one might politely call temperament. Sometimes abrasive and sometimes frivolous, divas who will fight over dressing rooms, make ferocious faces in the presence of photographers, break contracts, or cancel appearances all add to the legend, says Crutchfield. In fact, the first two female singers to be recorded as divas were tremendous rivals. These prima donnas, Faustina Bordoni and Francesca Cuzzoni, are best remembered for their performance on June 6, 1727, when according to some lurid accounts, they began the opera singing together and ended it pulling out one another's hair. Nowhere better can temperament be seen than with Catalani. In his book, Operatic Anecdotes, Ethan Morden notes that when a court official offended her in Munich, Catalani not only departed the city, swearing never to set foot in it again, but she refused to set foot there while she was leaving and had her servants cover the ground with rugs so she could mount her carriage on neutral territory. She dared even defy Napoleon, who ordered her to stay in France despite a contract with the King's Theatre in London. Catalani snuck out of the country rather than miss her London debut. For the rest of this podcast, I'm going to try to paint the full portrait of our divas, sharing some of their legends and playing clips that display their distinctive voices and musical genius. That was our next diva, Nellie Melba, singing her interpretation of the flute and voice cadenza in Lucia's Mad Scene in Donizetti's Lucia di Lamamur. Because her version of the cadenza was so iconic, 
Almost every soprano since has performed the cadenza in the same way to prove their technical abilities. Recognized as one of the greatest singers at the end of the Victorian era and into the early 20th century, Australian lyric soprano Melba was not satisfied to be, as Morden notes, simply among the greatest. Rather, she had to be the greatest. It was this desire, perhaps jealousy, that made Melba's legacy as what critic J.B. Steen described as immense. He explains that it was not the physical attributes of the joke prima donna, nor with a voice that would rank among the loudest or highest, but with a style of being, an oversized reputation, and an assumption of almost universal command. Melba's personality rings clear, perhaps clearer than her voice did, in an anecdote about her recordings. In the late 19th century, as recording technology became widespread, many singers began to preserve their voices on record, notably Melba and tenor Enrico Caruso. During these experimental beginnings, it was common for sopranos to perform with only piano. However, when Melba began recording her voice, she had to have an orchestra of 50. Furthermore, Melba demanded her own label for her discs, which she retained the final say as to whether they would be marketed. Although she recorded well, Melba frustrated the company because she dawdled to release her tapes. Morden explains that it took stratagem to win her over. Gramophone sales manager Sidney Dixon visited Melba in Monte Carlo to ply her with flowers, dinners, and groveling. French composer Camille Saint-Saëns was also in Monte Carlo and also, by hap, a gramophone artist. Best of all, he was one of Melba's confidants. Dixon maneuvered Melba and Saint-Saëns into a room, played a Caruso record, and asked Saint-Saëns for his opinion. More politique than Melba, Saint-Saëns registered a fine impression, and Melba immediately consented to the release of her discs. How does one get what one wants from a queen of song? By playing on her jealousy. Melba's desire to be the greatest extended to all aspects of singing. Although she was a lyric coloratura soprano, she nevertheless wanted to perform Wagner's Brunhilde, one of the most demanding roles in the dramatic soprano repertoire. Melba sought to prove that she could sing anything her rivals could. Unfortunately, she couldn't. After one performance of Siegfried at the Metropolitan Opera in 1896, Melba never sang the role again. Scandals like these enlarged Melba's persona as much as her wit and hauteur did, as it will with many of the performers we will listen to today. When tenor John McCormack made his Covent Garden debut and tried to bow with Melba, she pushed him away during the curtain calls, stating, In this house, nobody takes a bow with Nellie Melba. As one critic notes, the best of all her roles was Nellie Melba, and this is who she played at her memorable final curtain at Covent Garden on June 8, 1926. Singing for an audience that included the British royal family, Melba broke down in tears on stage to rapturous applause, as you can hear from this excerpt of her final farewell speech. That is farewell. I won't say goodbye because farewell is such a very beautiful word. I am sure you all know that it's part of a prayer 
and means fare thee well, which I all, I wish you all, and I feel sure that you wish me to say. Of course, this was but one of the many farewell concerts that Melba performed. What is amazing about this particular performance is that even at the age of 65, she still sounds like a vocal marvel. You can still hear the beauty and purity of her voice, which was often compared to silver. Here is a snippet of Melba performing the death scene in her most famous role, Mimi, in La Boheme. course, it wouldn't make sense to discuss divas without bringing up the most well-known incarnation of divadom in the 20th century, Maria Callas, or La Divina, the Divine One, as her devoted followers call her. Kalas possessed a voice that was impossible to forget. Not for its beauty, but for the skilled way she wielded such a flawed instrument to do incredible, and up until that point, unthinkable things. It was this one-of-a-kind quality that made audiences either love or hate her. In addition to her status as a superb musician, Kalas also played the role of the diva, and in some ways defined it for a generation of non-opera goers with things like her glamour and weight loss. Her diva-like behavior was not missed by the press, who built her up to be a tyrannical monster of the operatic stage, indulging her temper, her rivalries, and her swift vocal decline. But perhaps what made Kalas the archetypal diva was what EMI producer Walter Legg described as absolute sovereignty on the stage and quickness of thinking. He recalled that Callas's most admirable quality was that she was absolutely imperturbable. Even the hisses in Parma did not disturb her equanimity. There was an extraordinary case of that sort in Milan. It was a habit of her fans to occupy the seats in the gallery nearest to the stage, and when she took her curtain calls at the end of the opera, to shower her with small bouquets. The fans of a rival soprano because she had a rival in one period at La Scala named Renata Tabaldi, 
decided that they would disturb this. So they had bunches of radishes and carrots and other small vegetables. They got there earlier than the Callas fans, occupied the seats nearest the proscenium arch, and instead of Callas getting her usual shower of bouquets, she got a shower of vegetables. And of course, some bouquets from her own fans. She is very short-sighted, and she walked down, picked up each of these offerings from the floor, sniffed them. The vegetables were dropped into the orchestra, and the flowers were handed to colleagues. We can see a similar superiority in several stories that contribute to Callas's legacy. In 1949, Callas accomplished a truly incredible feat that made a relatively unheard-of soprano the talk of the operatic world. She sang Brunhilde in Wagner's Die Walküre, and immediately after went to sing Alvira in Bellini's I Puritani at the Teatro La Fenice in Venice. These roles are complete opposites in terms of their vocal demands, and yet she carried them both off convincingly. Our story begins one year after this achievement, when Kalas was invited to sing both Verdi's Aida and Bellini's Norma at the Mexico City's Palacio Bellas Artes in 1950. The director of the Palacio, Caraza Campos, knew of Kalas's success in I Puritani, and her mastery of its daunting high E-flat, which we just heard before. During rehearsals of Aida, he proposed that Calas, like the 19th century Mexican soprano Angela Peralta, should sing the final note of the opera's triumphal march at the end of Act II, up the octave as an E-flat in alt. An effective businesswoman, Calas teasingly refused and replied, if you want my E-flat, you must sign me for Bellini's Ipuritani, However, Caraza Campos did not need to wait that long. Callas's counterpart for both operas was tenor Kurt Baum, who was notorious for monopolizing the audience's applause by holding his top notes and ignoring signals from the conductor. This satisfied neither Callas nor the cast, and despite their complaints, Baum would continue in his obstinance. Not one to sit on the sidelines and watch her misbehaving colleague take all the glory, Kalas asked the other principals in the cast if they would mind if she gave an E-flat, except for Baum, who was left in the dark. Of course they didn't mind, and when Kalas launched an E-flat and held it for 15 seconds, she recalls that the public went crazy, and Baum was split with envy. In fact, Baum was so angry that he swore he would never sing with her again, and would even block her from singing at the Metropolitan Opera, where he was a regular member of the company. Fortunately, neither of these threats came to fruition, and it is possible that the prescient Baum knew as much when he was sick for the next performance of Aida. First, let's hear Callas sing the ensemble without the interpolated E-flat in the 1955 EMI studio recording.
excerpt from the 1950 triumphal march at the Palacio, you will hear Baum and Kalas face off until the final note, when Kalas astounds the audience with an electric E-flat in alt. Capturing the hearts of Mexico City's opera goers in 1950, Callas was invited back the following year for more Aidas, at which point the public expected her to interpolate the E flat again. Callas didn't disappoint. <laughs> Thank you. 
Moving from the hopeful beginnings of Kalas's career to its astonishingly quick end, this second story takes place eight years after the Palacio in 1958. To put this story into context, Kalas was facing an angry public thanks to a somewhat melodramatic event in Rome that same year. 3,000 people, from artists to aristocrats, from dancers to diplomats, as brilliant a first-night audience as the Eternal City has ever seen, all here to listen to Maria Menighini Callas, soprano. To crown the occasion, the President of the Italian Republic himself, Signor Giovanni Gronchi. But even the President has to be content with one act only. Then Maria Callas says she doesn't feel well. So as not to disappoint you too, our cameraman dropped in on a rehearsal. Perhaps he had a premonition what would happen on the night. As you can hear, Maria's voice was perfect. Maria has been known to walk out before, so if you want to be sure of hearing her, don't get all dressed up. Just go to a rehearsal. She usually stays to the end of those. Carlos's response to the scandal was... I told him I'm not well. Now something might come wrong. Who is my double? Nobody can double Carlos. Oh, so you take the responsibility of saying we will not substitute her. And he says, ah, of course I will. When the time came, he said, Callas is capricious, she won't. What am I supposed to say? I was sick, I could not continue, because if I was well, I would have continued and I was spitting their faces at my enemies. And if I can make my enemies on, I would not kill them, but I, if I could make them go on their knees in front of me, I can, I will, and I must. Callas finally had her chance to bring her enemies to their knees on April 9th, 1958, when she appeared in the titular role of Donizetti's Anna Bolena at La Scala. This was her first time in Italy since the scandal. By the time of her performance, she had been hailed as the Queen of La Scala, having dethroned Renata Tebaldi a few years earlier. But the Rome scandal stirred up so much hatred with the Italian public that an entire company of armed guards were ready outside the opera house should the anti-Calas protest cause any ruckus. Bolena's conductor, Gian Andrea Gavazzini, recalls all the public could think about was her cancellation in Rome. I went to her dressing room before the performance. She was there, alone in the costume of Anna Bolena. She looked ready to go to the block, for she knew the public was there to get her. I took her hand, and it was icy cold. I looked at her and said, now let's raise the temperature. But her first aria ended coldly. A witness, Piero Tosi, remembered how this changed by the end of Act One. When the guards in the opera seize Anna Bolena for adultery, Callas violently pushed them aside and hurled herself to the front of the stage, spitting the lines directly at the audience. Giudici, Adana, Giudici, judges. For Anna, judges. It was not theater anymore, it was reality. Callas was defending herself, all but saying, if this is my trial, judge me, 
But remember, I am your queen. She dared her accusers and stared them down, dramatically surpassing anything she had done, singing with scorching brilliance. When the curtain fell, the audience went mad, uproar, sheer lunacy. Then Kala swept forward for her bows, inflated with her power, her victory, her magnificence, and every time she came forth, she grew more. You could not dream what she did. It was a show within a show. When she left the theater, she was greeted with cheers at the back door and escorted to her car by the same audience that was originally ready to scorn her. Gavazzani summarized, when she entered the theater, she was the devil incarnate. And when she came out, an angel. To get a glimpse of what this event might have sounded like, here is Kalas singing the finale of Act One, beginning moments before she sings Giudici Adana, recorded in 1957 when the opera was first revived at La Scala.
This would not be the last time that Callas's reign at La Scala was called into question. On May 19th, shortly after her appearance in Bolena, Callas debuted the role of Imogene in Bellini's Il Pirata. It was Callas's 157th performance at La Scala, and it would be her last for the next two and a half years. Despite the audiences of La Scala returning to their devout worship after Bolena, the already tense relationship between Callas and the director of La Scala, Antonio Giringeli, began to worsen. As composer Giancarlo Menotti recalled, Giringeli immediately took a disliking to Callas. Many suggest that this was because he preferred singers that he could control. As we have seen, Callas was not one of those. Menotti retells Giringeli's response when he requested that Callas debut in his opera, the Consul at La Scala in 1951. Uh, so I called Gering and I said, I found my singer. Her name is Maria Callas. Gering said, Maria Callas, oh my God, no, never, never, never. I said, well, listen, you promised me I could have Maria Callas. And uh, the Sabbath was present at our meeting. You cannot uh, go back on your word. So Gering said, well, I promised you that she could, uh, any singer you chose, would uh, uh, you would choose that it would come to uh, would be acceptable to me, but I will not have Maria Callas in this theater as, uh, uh, unless she only comes as a guest artist. She actually had already sung once at La Scala, I believe. I think she sang a performance of Aida as a guest artist, and evidently uh, Giringelli hated her at first sight. Anticipating Giringelli's intention to be rid of her. Callas took her retaliation, as usual, on the stage. In the final scene of Il Pirata, Imogene, performed by Callas, imagines the scaffold on which her pirate lover is to die, with the words, La vedete, il palco funesto. There, behold, the fateful scaffold. By coincidence, palco means both scaffold and theater box in Italian. Seizing the moment, Callas walked across the stage and pointed directly at Giringeli in his theater box as she spat the words, Il palco funesto. In response, Giringeli left his box and retreated backstage as soon as the performance finished. From there, he executed his revenge by signaling the heavy safety curtain to be lowered abruptly, cutting off Maria from the audience's cheers, applause, and showers of flowers. To put this in perspective, her solo bow lasted 24 minutes at the opera's premiere, and now Giringeli had reduced it to mere moments. You can imagine the insult to the queen of La Scala. Maria recalled, as I walked for the last time out of the theater that had been my operatic home for seven years, they were standing out in the street, throwing flowers for me. They had finally found a place where they could say goodbye. Giringeli explained Callas's removal when he said, The prima donnas pass, the scala remains. Little did he know that Callas's legacy would only grow with time. A year later, in 1959, we can hear Callas in New York singing the same fateful last words as at La Scala, Il palco funesto, in the final scene of Il Pirata. Thank you. 
Although the emotion that Kala stirred in her audiences is remarkably moving, a diva's worshippers can also be very destructive. Often, intense animosity results between factions who delight in tearing apart other divas that might challenge the throne of another. Such worshippers, often called clacks, will sometimes try to distract or put down an opposing diva by heckling during a performance. The Kalas clack was referred to as the Kalasiani in Italy, and they were particularly menacing to our next diva, soprano Renata Scotto. reasons why the Calasiani might have thought that Scotto challenged Callas's legacy, a legacy worth protecting even after Callas had left the stage. One, when Callas left to attend one of Elsa Maxwell's parties, the lowly understudy Scotto successfully stood in for Callas in Bellini's La Sonambula and became internationally famous overnight. Two, Scotto's repertoire was wide-ranging like Callas's, spanning from the bel canto roles such as Lucia di Lammermoor or the more dramatic parts like Verdi's Lady Macbeth. Three, like Callas, she was a committed actress on stage and Scotto even managed to successfully slim down later in her career, much like Callas. And finally, four, Scotto's voice was teasingly referred to as Screecho by several critics. And one can imagine from this description that like Callas, she brilliantly crafted an otherwise unpleasant-sounding instrument. These motives came to a head when Scotto debuted as Elena in Verdi's I Vespri Siciliani at La Scala in 1970, from which we just heard a brief excerpt of the Act IV, Bolero. After the performance, Scotto recalled that I have never had any trouble with her fans before. No trouble with the clacks at all, as a matter of fact. And of course, I did not expect any trouble from these groups at La Scala. One would have to reach very far to imagine a competition between a singer in Vespri in 1970 and a retired singer who had sung the role in 1951. She is referring here to the famous opening night when Callas finally debuted at La Scala in Ivespri and Giringeli was forced to accept Callas as an important diva at the house. Scotto also recalls that as soon as I entered, there was a demonstration from a small but very loud group shouting, Brava Callas! I had no idea what they meant, but they kept it up. They called out, Maria, Maria! While I sang and then shouted, Brava Callas! again. During my last aria, I could see Maria Callas in the stage box, and at the curtain calls, I was happy that she did not acknowledge the shouts of Maria, Maria that oozed through the applause, but she gave me a standing ovation instead. Unfortunately for Scotto, a gossip columnist interviewed her in her dressing room after the show, when she was still frustrated by what had happened on stage. Although she later regretted it, she said, let them get Callas to come and do Vespri if she can sing. However, the columnist wasn't quite true to her words, according to Scotto, that is. She quoted Scotto as having said, 
Kalas was hoping to harm me, but she didn't succeed. In fact, I would have loved for her to come onto the stage and sing Ivespri for me. I wonder what she could have done, poor thing. Nowadays, she doesn't sing anymore, and maybe she believed that it was possible to revive her success in this wrong and rather pathetic way. By the third performance, everyone had read the column, and each performance thereafter was just like the first, boos, whistles, and hurled comments. Of course, this may not have been so surprising after Scotto was reported to have insulted the queen of the Calasiani. Scotto later discovered that the Calasiani didn't limit themselves to La Scala. They appeared in houses around the world, including the Metropolitan Opera. One of the most publicized occasions at which they were present was the 1979 telecast live from the Met when Scotto debuted as Luisa in Verdi's Luisa Miller. Although Callas never performed the role of Luisa herself, the Calasiani took any excuse to disrupt Scotto's performances following her interview in Milan. In this particular performance, the Calasiani yelled Brava Maria Callas before Scotto's first aria. Although these cries were removed from the Live from the Met video release, they were heard across the globe on the original telecast. Despite the interruption, Scotto continued her performance as best she could, ignoring her accosters. However, it was not until Act Two that Scotto had the opportunity to face down her assailants, when the villain, Wurm, forces Louisa to write a false love letter to him in exchange for her father's freedom, Louisa retaliates in the cabaletta or final section of her aria with the words Abrani, Abrani, O Perfido, or O Perfidious Wretch. Having discussed Callas's breaks from theatre into reality earlier in this episode, I'm sure the poignancy of these lines will not be lost as we end part one of Divas Uncensored with this scene from Louisa Miller.
That was Matthew Timmermans in part one of his Divas Uncensored series, created for the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Guild is excited to announce our new season of programming. Our brochure is in the mail and available online, and ticket sales open on August 6th. Visit metguild.org lectures for all the details. We'll be back with you next week for Divas Uncensored Part 2. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, and thanks for listening.